We've been uh, talking about this uh, David, and one of the questions we've been asking from day one with this series is, what's so compelling? What's so, what's so appealing about David? Because when you look at uh, human history, whatever civilization, whatever culture, whatever era of time, it seems like David, the story of David invariably shows up in, in some way, some form or fashion. And we've sought to answer that question. What is it about David? He's the most mentioned person in the Bible. 66 chapters that mention David in the Bible. And we have sought to answer that question. A few weeks ago, we began the series by talking about it's the, the fact of David's humble beginnings that really compels us, that draws us to his story. And then the, the, the week after that, we, we talked about the bravery and the courage of David, that he takes on this giant called Goliath. And then last week, Jeff Burton talked about it's the fact that David recognized that the earthly throne was no comparison to the heavenly throne uh, that God resides in. That the, the kingdom of Israel was small in comparison to the kingdom of God and had that humility around that. Well, we want to continue a- answering that question, what is it about David that's so appealing this morning? And this story that we look into this morning is a shift. It's a shift in terms of uh, David and Israel. And before we step into that, uh, we need to recognize at this point in 2 Samuel that uh, so far in 2 Samuel is nothing but fortune and fame and success for David and Israel. In many ways, it's the golden era of David and Israel. They are the most dominant tribe, group of people on the face of the earth, and everything is happening for them. And David is at the height of his power. And as we read through 2 Samuel, just a cursory glance of 2 Samuel uh, from chapters 1 through 10, all we see is sort of public triumph. But in, in chapter 11, things shift. It goes from public triumph to personal tragedy. So if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel, or excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to take a look at this famous story, the famous affair of David and Bathsheba. And this this is a shift, as I mentioned. This is a shift in terms of uh, the future for David and also for Israel. In in many ways, David and Israel don't recover from this. This simple choice, this decision that David enacts. Um, Because after this, things get really painful and challenging for, for David and also for the the people of Israel. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and you have your teaching notes this morning too, I invite you to pull those out, you can follow along. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, read verses 1 through 5, and this is from the New American Standard Version, and you can see the uh, verses on the slide behind me, or you can follow in the Bible that you have as well. Then, then, it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab, and Joab was one of his main generals, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Amnon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. In your Bible this morning, and perhaps in your notes, that's a key phrase. But David stayed at Jerusalem. He's supposed to be at war. He stayed back. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed, walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself for, uh, from her uncleanness, 
she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, I ask for your blessing upon this message, that you anoint these words, and that you take this narrative, this story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 uh, to form us, to shape us, to instruct us in our lives. And God, I just um, submit myself to you and that your words uh, would flow through me and that you would speak through this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. One of the things that we notice right away just in these first five verses is this is very stark. It's, it's almost like this, the story of David and Bathsheba is shot in black and white film. It's very stark. There's no emotion. There's no affection. There's no conversation. And in fact, the, the action is so quick. Look at verse 4. Three verbs where uh, David sent, and then he took her, and then he lay with her. This immediate action. And then even in, in, in verse 4, it, when we read about uh, Bathsheba, is that uh, uh, she conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. There's no feeling. There's no pathos at all. It's very stark, very, very much black and white film. And it gives us a little bit of, of what's happening here in terms of the circumstances. And yet we look at the story, I think, in, in many parts, we think this is a very straightforward, very uh, sort of simple story. But for us, we need to step back for a moment that we have a rendering of life in its most intimate details. This is a story that drives right into humanity and exposes a web of foolishness and fear and fidelity that comprises who we are. I think in many ways, we kind of cringe when we read about this story because this is more than we want to know about David and it's also more than we, we want to understand about ourselves. Because in many ways, this story is our story. The, the key phrase, though, I want to kind of camp on in my first point here is this phrase, he took her. In your notes, David becomes a taker. He becomes a taker. And up until this point, before this in 2 Samuel and also 1 Samuel, the story of David is that he's not a taker. He is humble. He receives from God. He receives from his friend Jonathan. He receives from people around him. But suddenly, he's transformed into a taker. Now he's in control. He can have whatever he wants. He's at the height of his power. He's at the height of his power. And he has no second thoughts, no reservations, no justifications. He simply takes because he can. And he took. This shouldn't surprise us at all, because if you read First and Second Samuel, you're reminded of 1 Samuel chapter 8 where the Israelites were crying out for a king. They are saying, you know, look at the neighboring nations. They have a king and we don't. Look at the Joneses. Look at the other people. They have a king in their country, but Israel, we, we don't have a king. And they cry out to God and to Samuel to give them a king. But, but Samuel warns them. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, verses 11 through 17, you have that in your notes right there. And you'll notice the key phrase, he takes. So kings do. Kings take. He, king, the king will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots. He will also, you can say it out loud, it's okay. He will also take your daughters and perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will, yes, he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves. He will, a tenth of your seed and your vineyards. He will also, 
your, your, let's see where, male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work, he will a tenth of your flocks. That's what kings do, unfortunately. And Samuel warns them well in advance. That's what kings do. They take, and, and David becomes a taker. And the question is, is why? Why does he become a taker? And we're not really quite sure why that is, but I think one of the answers is that he becomes so, so self-absorbed, so self-absorbed in terms of his world. Everything revolves around him. I think it was very easy for him to become so self-centered and so self-obsessed with his kingdom and with his rule. And I think there's something about when we focus on ourselves, there's something about when we are self-absorbed that um, I think resonates with the story of David right here because I think all of us can relate to this story. That, that the story of David right here is a story of, of a man who is so self-absorbed, he doesn't even really understand the reality. He loses sight of who he is. He loses sight of the kingdom of God, of his humble beginnings, of being a brave warrior. And he's so self-absorbed. And being, self, being self-absorbed actually creates within us a sensation. Actually, a neurological buzz. There's a study done by, done by Harvard University recently. They did a study on 197 people, and they actually uh, put these little sensors on their brains and be able to photograph uh, these, uh, these folks' brains. And actually, they found out through the study that the same part of the brain that takes pleasure from such food as fried chicken and pizza and chocolate ice cream, which creates a sort of a buzz, but that same sensation, that same pleasure is the same pleasure as they found out when somebody would talk about themselves over a matter of time. That same part of their brain would actually trigger sort of a buzz, a high, when they saw photographs of themselves and talked about themselves. There's something about being self-absorbed that creates a neurological buzz, and I think that is part of it for David, is that he is, he is so self-centered, and it does something for him. And I think for us, as we, as we think about the story, the question for us is maybe right now, as you, as you think about yourself, is that somewhere along the line, you become more of a taker. As you look at the story, the challenge for you could be that instead of taking, what might be a way that I can give? What might be a way that I can be more unselfish? That as you, you look back on your life, and, and maybe it's not to the degree that we see with David and Bathsheba, but maybe there's something in your life where you sort of transformed in, in simply being a taker. What steps can you take this morning to be more of a giver? Because that's who God is. And we're called to be uh, people who reflect God. And God fundamentally is a giver. And that's one of the problems with David right here is that he shifts gears and he goes in a different direction. Instead of reflecting God as a giver, he becomes a taker. What might be a way that you do that? Is there a friend in your life right now? Maybe for you, when you have coffee the next time, instead of talking about your stories and your life, but actually beginning by asking questions and maybe just listening and maybe pulling back from the kind of news or events that you would typically share. Is there somebody in your life where you could provide some resources for them, to give to them? Maybe they're on a missions trip. Maybe they have something coming up. Maybe they're just in financial need right now. 
what might be a way that you actually can be a, a giver? Well, the story doesn't stop there. Not only do we learn that David, is, uh, David becomes a taker, we also see that as he is self-absorbed and self-centered, he seeks to hide his sin. He seeks to hide his sin. David instructs the messengers. If you have your uh, teaching notes, you'll take a look at this here. This is Second uh, Samuel chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. David says this, Well, then tell Joab not to be discouraged. David said, the sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder the next time and conquer the city. Can you see how he's trying to justify his actions? Because what happened is that not only did David uh, uh, have this affair with Bathsheba, but also what he did is that he tried to convince Uriah to come back from war and to have sex with his wife Bathsheba. And he refuses to do that. Uriah is a loyal soldier. He says, no, I need to be back on the battlefield. I'm not going to do that. And David tries over and over and over. If you read this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, I encourage you to do that. He he tries to encourage Uriah to to stay, but Uriah wants to go back on the battlefield, so David gives up, and he can't convince him. So what he does, what David actually does, is that he sends Uriah to the front lines. And he sends him to the most dangerous area of the battlefield. Almost, almost in, a, in a 100% way that Uriah is going to be killed. The most dangerous area of the battlefield. And I have a nice bass guitar soundtrack behind me right now as I'm teaching. I like that. But, but anyways, Uriah is sent to the front lines. And it's actually Joab. It's Joab, uh, from instructions of David, that sends Uriah to the front lines. And Uriah is killed. Of course he is. The most dangerous area of the front lines. And and so this is the conversation. We pick it up here in chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, because David wants to keep this sin secret. Not only Bathsheba, but also the fact that he had Uriah murdered in the front lines. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. In other words, it's just war. It's just war. That's what happens. Fight harder the next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Now, I want to just bring in some other language here. You may want to write these down. In the, in the New American Standard Version, what actually David says here to Joab is, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. That's in verse 25. And it's interesting that David sort of uses this generic phrase, this thing because it's much more than that. But he refers to it as this sort of bland, generic, this thing, this thing. Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. But notice something in verse 27, the last verse that you have there. And in the New American Standard Version, it says that God saw this as evil. God saw this as evil. God was displeased with what David had had done. In other words, what, what David had done was evil in the sight of God. So what David does, your teaching notes, is that David covers. He continues to cover the sin. 
And I think in a way, it, it, it seems like, like David thinks God's abilities are slipping as if God is not going to notice what's going on. Perhaps God's eyesight is slipping. Perhaps his hearing is starting to decline because of his old age or something. I don't, I'm not sure what David is thinking, but maybe, maybe he thinks that, that God's abilities are slipping. It reminds me of a story that this uh, couple... They just celebrated their 50th anniversary, and they're sitting by the fireplace, and the, the husband uh, wants to say something romantic to his wife of 50 years, and he turns to her, and he says, you know, after 50 years, I have found you tried and true. And her hearing was kind of going a little bit, and she's like, what? And he, he said again, I, after 50 years, I have found you tried and true. Just a nice romantic thought. And then she responds, after 50 years... I'm tired of you too. So when you're celebrating your anniversary, try that one on sometime. But maybe in some way, David's thinking God's hearing is slipping or his eyesight is, is slipping in some way. And, and he acts like God can't see what's going on. But God could see just fine. We see that in verse 27, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. It was evil in the sight of God. And God says, this is evil. And David thought that no one would notice and that in some way he could sort of cover this, these events. But that's what sin does in our lives. That's what sin does. It actually causes us to seek hiddenness because that's what sin wants. It wants to be in secret. It wants to be in hiddenness. Paul reminds us of this in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un, from all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, the Greek there is adikon, suppress the truth. And the first thing, he's, and the first thing that Paul says about what, what sin does to us, it causes us to, to suppress the truth. In other words, keep it covered. Keep it hidden. Don't let it out, get, don't let it get to the light because sin is repelled by light. It wants to stay, stay in secrecy. It wants to stay in the dark places. It wants hiddenness. And David erroneously thinks that this sin that was done in secret can remain in secret. And this whole mess could be erased from everybody's memory. Well, as we look at this story, this is a story of a number of things, but it's a story of sin. And I think too often, um, sin isn't talked about these days. It's almost like it's an old-fashioned, antiquated word, um, the S word. We, 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 don't, we don't talk about it with friends, or we don't really talk about it that much in, in, in a church these days. It seems like that word is just so old-fashioned. And yet the Bible reminds us um, so much, and I think the story of David and Bathsheba is a story about the consequences, the enormous con- consequences, not only on sin on the individual, but also the collective as well, because Israel never recovered from this, what happened here. And I just want to give you a definition of what sin is, and this is, uh, I found this by a writer that is so helpful. I really enjoyed this. Sin is the greatness of God not admired. It's the truth of God not sought. It's the goodness of God not savored. It's the commandments of God not obeyed. And oftentimes we think sin is simply just that. Sin is the presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. 
It's a good definition of what sin is. And there's consequences for sin. When we um, give towards um, something else, when we give our heart to something else, we act in a certain way like David does, there's consequences for that. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 12, um, it says that, and here's the consequences, that the first time where God weighs in with what's going to happen to David and what's going to happen to um, his family. He says this in verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. It's God saying, you know what? My abilities have not slipped. I can still see very well. Thank you very much. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. And it's not just David's house. It's Israel. Because that point four, you trace Israelite history, is that they're always in, in, in um, conflict and war up until the Babylonian exile. The, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord... Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did this in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. For us, David's story is our story. It's for us to realize that when we sin, that there's consequences. There's consequences for us, and sometimes, in this case, there can be consequences for the innocent, for family members, co-workers, as a result of decisions and actions that we take. Well, next, not only does this story tell us that David becomes a taker, and not only does it teach us that David covers, and also we do that too, is that David's story teaches us to kill sin before it kills us. To kill sin before it kills us. I think for us is to realize of how powerful sin can be when we try to keep it secret, when we try to keep it hidden. And perhaps you're thinking right now that um, you need to take steps to bring sin out into the light. And that takes a lot of courage. It might be talking to your spouse about something. It might be mean talking to a friend. But I encourage you to do it. God will walk alongside you in his grace to help you do that because there's something about bringing sin from the darkness and hiddenness into the light that is so transformative. And that's why I want to kind of give you some action steps here of how to kill sin before it kills you. First of all, and I came across this recently, I think this is great advice, you can kill it by making a sin list. There's a pastor I know who's been doing this for 10 years and I came across this recently, and he talked about it when he first started doing this. And instead of doing just a general, God, forgive me for my sin, which is, which is fine. I mean, God hears that. He honors that. And through the atoning uh, sacrifice of Christ, that's forgiven. But what he found is that he wanted to be more specific with his sin. And, and he wrote down, um, he just took, took a morning just to write down every specific sin that he could remember to make a sin list. It took him nine pages. And what he found through the practice of doing that is that he was less inclined to engage in that sin. And sometimes it was just a thought or a notion of the heart. It wasn't really an action. But he wrote it down. 
And what he found, too, not only was he less inclined to sin, but also he was so moved as he looked at those nine pages and said, by the grace of God, I am forgiven. He, he said his understanding and his experience of grace was so profound, it brought him to his knees to realize that all these sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. I think a sinless is a great idea. I'm not saying make nine pages, but that might be for you just to start out with three or four or five and be really specific and ask God for forgiveness. Also, you can kill sin through your thought life. We don't talk about that very often, but I think for David, his sin began maybe weeks before, maybe months before, maybe years before in his mind. It often does that for us, doesn't it? And we're wise to confess the sins of our thoughts because that's where jealous thought, that's where sudden lust, that's where quick criticisms, that's where harsh judgments start. And they fuel our minds and they move us towards action of sin. I love this. This verse has been with me for over 30 years and I remember it as a kid in Awana. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We are destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So when you have that thought that, that's not good, uh, whatever it is, is just to grab that thought and just bring it to the cross. And bring it to the cross and say, Jesus, forgive me. Give me power over this thought right now. This, this thought I have in my mind, this jealousy, this anger, because the truth is, as we look at David and Bathsheba, you and I have sinned in similar ways. It's not like his, his story is so egregious that we can't relate to it. I have lied in my life. I've cheated. I've murdered against people in my heart. I think each of us have in, in different ways. This is our story here. And one of the ways that we can, we can combat that is by, is by bringing those thoughts first to Christ Jesus. Lastly, is that we can kill it by seeking God's word. I love Paul's thought in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. He talks about the armor of God. In all of the articles of armor he describes in chapter 6, verse 17, are defensive pieces of armor, except for one. There's one offensive piece of armor, and it's the word of God. He writes this, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. God's word, when we memorize it, when we read it, is our offense to kill sin, to combat sin, to resist the temptations of the enemy. And we kill sin when we trust that God's word and his way hold a superior satisfaction. Let me pray for us this morning. God in heaven, I pray for each person that's here. And as we think about sin in, in, in our lives, um, and maybe for some of us, we're not quite sure what to do. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us and you would lead us to bring that sin in prayer and to be more mindful of our thoughts, to be more mindful of what stirs in our heart. Help us in the times of success, especially when things are going really well, um, not to be so self-centered, but to be mindful of the fragility of life and that we go forward by the grace of God and that we depend fully upon you. Help us to cling on to the person of God to give our love and our heart to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.